welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Uh, Folks, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. And we are glad you're here with us uh, through the internet waves, and, and uh, we want to celebrate with you. Uh, we're here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. I bet you can guess what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Folks, He is risen. He is risen. And this resurrection, it has been a very dominant and essential doctrine of Christianity since the very beginning. It is right there with the deity of Christ uh, the virgin birth by Mary, uh, the wonderful doctrines that we see contained in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it is so essential, the resurrection, not only uh, a spiritual resurrection, but a physical, a bodily resurrection from the grave. All of these, deity of Christ, virgin birth, uh, resurrection physically from the grave are under attack today, again and again. Uh, but you really can't propose, folks, that you believe that God's Son rose from the dead after paying our sin debt on the cross, yet say there's just no way you can buy in that God's Son was, was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. You know, that's just incongruous. That, that, that spiritual duplicity to say, well, I can accept an empty grave but I just can't buy into the other miraculous uh, tenets of the faith. Christ resurrected as uh, being uh, raised from the grave is also referred to in Scripture as the first fruits. I'm going to ask you to, uh, if you have your Bible with you handy, to turn both to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, put a finger there, and then also in Luke chapter 20. And uh, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, and this next week we would have fallen upon uh, the passage previous to what we're studying today, and that would have been uh, the tribute to Caesar. And anyhow, we are going to pass over that paragraph, and we will land directly on Luke chapter 20, uh, uh, a passage about the resurrection. As I said, Christ's resurrection is often referred to as the first fruits the Feast of First Fruits that was celebrated in Israel each year, that feast was a celebration signifying that with these first fruits, the first of the harvest, that there would be a blessed, uh, greater harvest to come shortly thereafter, uh, soon after. Christ's resurrection, therefore, assures that we too will be raised from the dead bodily just as he was raised. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, assures, as in Adam all die, that means as in Adam, we too as human, as sinners, in Adam we all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he was first, after that those who are Christ, those who belong to him at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom to God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So Christ assures us that, that we will rise. There's no question to this. And, and due to our 
a special Easter program today. We didn't have an opportunity in there, a spot to provide a dedicated scripture reading. So I'm going to give you the scripture reading right now from, um, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we read that, I'd like you to begin to discern just how essential uh, this doctrine of the resurrection is to the Christian faith. From the beginning of the church, uh, there were false teachers casting shade or, or, or casting doubt on the physical resurrection. So Paul the Apostle, in response, settles this permanently. States it like this. Now if Christ is preached that he is raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Uh, I.e., you cannot be saved, you cannot have salvation, apart from believing in a Christ who has been raised. Moreover, he continues in verse 15, We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Folks, resurrection is important. Then those also who have fallen asleep or passed away in Christ have perished. Then Paul summarizes by saying this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. Folks, that that is the understatement of the ages. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all. Of all men to be most pitied. No resurrection. I mean, is this all there really is? This life, the here and now. Now really, is this as good as it gets? Think about that for a second. We we just eat and, and drink and be merry, perhaps if we're fortunate. Live for a few decades, enjoy what we have, then die. And then it's all over. Really. You know, we cease to exist, some propose. What, what would even be the point of that? What would be the point of life if we were to cease to exist? No, folks, Scripture is clear. Uh, the Bible is clear. Christ is clear. We are each created by God as an eternal soul. An eternal soul. Uh, you will never cease to exist. Never, ever. Christ and the Bible are clear. You and I will spend eternity in one of two places. That's the truth. The notion, however, that we're only to spend a few decades here on earth and enjoy as much as we possibly can, that's not a new concept. That is actually a very ancient idea, very old. In fact, it was the view of some in Israel as Jesus walked the earth. In Luke 20, verse 27, we are going to see Jesus encounters a Jewish faction, a a group that believes there is no resurrection at all. We're going to get there in just a minute. But but there are other fashions of this. There there is a related false theory of extinction after death. 
It's held by some Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, who both propose that for those who don't merit salvation, for those who don't merit heaven, uh, those folks, because it is a merit-based theology rather than, as we Christians believe, a, a grace-based theology, but, but they suggest that in their merit-based theology, those who don't merit heaven, simply they will be annihilated. That's called annihilationism. Uh, that view that you will just cease to exist is largely inspired by their belief that God would be unjust by sending anyone to hell. Now, folks, that idea lacks a basic understanding of not only Scripture, but God's holiness, His supreme holiness, as well as uh, the spiritual depravity, the corruption, the wickedness of man. God is not unjust by judging those who are sinful and wicked. He is just when he judges those who are sinful and wicked. That, their theology, it's a deficiency that's exposed when Jesus describes suffering in hell himself. When he describes suffering in hell as being equally as, ter- as eternal as the bliss experienced in heaven. Another problem arises when, when we recognize that these don't believe that Jesus saved them from a literal punishment in hell. If you are annihilated, you're not saved from a literal punishment for your sins. Instead, uh, supposedly, Christ died on the cross to spare them from ceasing to exist. Now, folks... Ceasing to exist doesn't scare me. I'm just going to be real honest with you right there. Uh, I don't have, I'm perfectly fine with ceasing to exist. That doesn't horrify me. What terrifies me and what the Lamb of God died to save me from is a place, Scripture says in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. It is an eternal lake lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 10, where they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever, folks. Ceasing to exist, that's easy. But it's false. It's a false belief system. Torment, day and night, forever and ever, a fire that is never quenched. This is what Christ saved me from. He saved me from destruction, a literal penalty that I would have endured for my sins. Christ, He endured it for me. Then He rose from the grave, and Christians today rise. All across the world, Christians today rise to worship Him because Dying on the cross, he literally atoned for, he made satisfaction for, he endured God's wrath for our sins. He paid for our suffering, the suffering we would have endured on the cross. Just dismiss that annihilation business. It just, it's a damning error. Dangerous, dangerous. By comparison to that, though, that some will be annihilated and others will go on into heaven. By comparison, there's a Jewish faction that Jesus encounters in Luke 20, verse 27, that holds a different view than that, uh, that there is no resurrection at all for anybody, for anyone. This sect is called the Sadducees. 
the Sadducees. And, and this is the first time in this Gospel of Luke that the reader is introduced to the Sadducees. Uh, they were an elite, a very elite, a very influential religious group. They were generally quite wealthy. They were very successful. They poured all of their energy into amassing uh, wonderful things in this world. Amassing these things in the here and now was their focus because they didn't believe there was anything after death in the future. So they poured all their energy into the here and now. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have accepted Jesus' teaching real well on store your treasure up in heaven. Or don't bother filling your barns because uh, you're just going to leave it all behind anyhow. They wouldn't have taken to that type of teaching very well at all. They also were a group who embraced what is called a partial inspiration of Scripture. A partial inspiration of Scripture. They only took the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's referred to as the Pentateuch. Uh, it is also referred to as the Book of Moses. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only took those five books as God's divine word. They did not embrace the prophets or the Psalms or Proverbs, uh, any of the other Jewish scriptures, as authoritative. They might have seen them as somewhat helpful, in ideas, but they did not view them as authoritative as the Word of God. The reason that they didn't, the reason they didn't is because the balance of Scripture, other than those first five books, it interfered with their doctrinal conclusions, caused problems for them and what they believed. Sadly, Acts 23 verse 8 assures us, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. That, that was what they were known for. Uh, now, if you're a fairly new Christian, or uh, um, if, you're, if you hadn't heard this before, you're probably still trying to remember, how do, you, how do you know for certain whether it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees, those two very distinct religious groups, which one of them did not accept the resurrection? Well, it's easy to remember, because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and that is the reason they were so sad, you see. Now, for those who have been Christians for a while, and you've heard that 500 times, I apologize today. But for those who are fairly new, it is the easiest way to distinguish the two. The Sadducees were very sad. They were, they were convinced, Sadducees were convinced, that, af, that a resurrected afterlife, uh, beyond the grave, beyond death, they were convinced that that could not be defended from the book of Moses. They, they figured you couldn't find it there. So they would conveniently marginalize other scriptures that alluded to an afterlife. Now, this would never happen among Christians, would it? To dismiss other parts of scripture. Oh yeah, folks. Oh yeah, we see strains of this virus all over Christendom today, all over the place. Um, there are what we call red-letter Christians. Maybe you've heard of that term before. Red-letter Christians give much more added weight in the Bible to those words spoken by Jesus over other passages and other scriptures uh, written by the prophets and apostles. Uh, they do this primarily. There are varying reasons. But they do this because some of what the apostles write in the New Testament 
challenges their error in understanding. It somehow escapes their notice, however, that the words spoken by Jesus, the the red letters, were recorded and written by these same fellas. The same fellas. The red ink is just something that publishers added for accent. Written by the same guys. So, so it's easy to spot red-letter Christians when you show them a difficult doctrine, one perhaps from Jude or, or James or Peter or Paul or the Old Testament especially. Uh, their response is, yeah, but Jesus said, and then they will contradict what you just showed them. Uh, be cautious of that. Be cautious of that, folks. They, they don't possess a consistent biblical theology cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, They have to try to find a way to dismiss other parts of Scripture. In a similar error, some will say, I alluded to it briefly last week, uh, some will say, you know, I really like the New Testament, love the New Testament, read it all the time, it's just so encouraging to me, I love it. Uh, But they don't have much good to say about the Old Testament. You know, no, no, I don't like that Old Testament. And it's often because too many things revealed in the Old Testament don't fit their belief system. They, they just don't fit nicely with what they've concluded. So they diminish the Old Testament and dismiss it as irrelevant. Folks, that was the mistake of the Sadducees. They dismissed portions of Scripture. Uh, these folks that dismiss Uh, anything other than said by Jesus or the Old Testament or any part of Scripture, they they embrace a partial inspiration of Scripture. They might say things like, yeah, you know, that that whole idea of God destroying Sodom thing, that doesn't really mesh real nicely with my view of Jesus, so I'm really not going to buy into that. Uh, uh, You know, we we just don't want to be judgmental, they'll say. Or, Or that whole story of Jonah, that big fish, you'll say, it's just so outlandish. You know, how could we possibly accept that? Why would I waste my time trying to read and understand any of that stuff from the Old Testament? Well, maybe, just maybe because Jesus said of the Old Testament scriptures, it is these that testify about me. Maybe, just maybe, it's because Jesus said, this is found in in Matthew 12, verse 40, he said, just as Jonah, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then we know in Jonah, Jonah was raised. Jesus Folks, Jesus defended his own resurrection, his own promise and prophecy of a resurrection, on what occurred with Jonah. The historical accuracy of Jonah. Jesus hinged his own resurrection on the historical accuracy of Jonah. Therefore, we we can't honestly propose that Jesus died for sins atoned for our sins on the cross, the Son of God Himself, and and then rose again, but then there's, then say, you know, there's just no any way, no any way whatsoever with Jonah. 
Couldn't have happened. Or, or Noah. Or God could have never formed Adam out of the dust at creation. Folks, either at his, at his sovereign design and power, either God can do miracles or he doesn't. The resurrection, once you've accepted that, once you truly believe it in spirit, as our program was saying earlier, just not intellectually assenting to something, but by the Holy Spirit, truly believe that Christ died for your sins, that you're convicted of your sins, not just in theory, but in heart. When you've, when you've accepted the resurrection, every other miracle in the Bible, it's, it's an easy downhill ride. It really is. Other parts of the Bible d- begin to fall like dominoes. Uh, this is one reason that true Christians have never had a problem accepting uh, biblical inerrancy and, and what is called a plenary inspiration rather than a, a partial reps, uh, inspiration, a plenary inspiration, meaning it's all God's word, cover to cover. All scripture is God-breathed. All is profitable. All is useful. God doesn't distinguish his word one part from another. The New Testament surely arises from the prophecies of the Old Testament. Christ was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. And uh, the New Testament is used as the proper lens to look through when properly interpreting the Old Testament. But when it's properly interpreted and properly explained, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, never has an error and never contradicts itself when properly explained. Folks, that is proper theology. In contrast, in contrast to plenary inspiration, those who dismiss parts of the Bible as being less authoritative rather than explaining them, they either have a deficiency of understanding or worse, something to hide. Enter stage left. Wait, that direction. The Pharisees. Excuse me, the Sadducees. Entering the picture now is the Sadducees. They've got something to hide. We are in the uh, Wednesday of Holy Week, of Passion Week. Christ will be in this passage now, the timeline. Christ is going to be crucified in two days. In two days. The Sadducees are going to confront him. Jesus has been suffering confrontation uh, repeatedly for the last several days. They dismiss portions of Scripture, I said, in part because it exposes their skepticism of the resurrection, exposes their error. So they embrace only the book of Moses as authoritative. What do you think Jesus is going to do? What do you think his response is going to be? Folks, he is going to ruin their day. He's going to ruin their day big time. Do you think, perhaps, that Jesus can defend the doctrine of the resurrection from the book of Moses? Nod your head, yes. Oh yeah, oh yeah, their beloved book of Moses. The Sadducees are the ones who come picking a fight. Jesus is at the temple. He has been teaching on this Wednesday. He has been confronted. They come after him. They think it's their turn, so they tag in. And in Luke 20, verse 27, if you turn there now, they present an outlandish scenario. An outlandish scenario, expecting and hoping to confound Jesus, 
to confuse him, and, and then leave him speechless. Let, let's take a peek to see how that goes, all right? Luke 20, verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother uh, dies, having a wife, and, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also, and they asked Jesus, In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven married her. You know, Jesus always based his arguments from Scripture. So his adversaries, cunning as they are, employ a legitimate statute here, a legitimate uh, statute from the law and from Moses. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 is the reference for this. And, and they propose a, a very unlikely but plausible scenario. Unlikely, but it is plausible. And then they ask Jesus, if there's a resurrection... Explain to us how this works. You know, the law did say if your brother were to die and the widow were left childless, that that brother should marry the childless widow to, to raise up offspring in his brother's name so that his brother's legacy wouldn't be blotted out, that his name wouldn't be blotted out from the land. That is a legitimate statute. So there, in essence, their question is, and it's full of hidden sarcasm. Their question is, well, whose wife then will she be? In this supposed resurrection, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus supplies this very pointed reply. Very straight, pointed, sharp reply. It's recorded beginning in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 22, verse 29. And he says this, You are mistaken and not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Folks, this was an insulting response to these Sadducees who prided themselves as religious elites as understanding of the scriptures when they felt nobody else was. His reply also challenges you know, some people's erroneous understanding, uh, erroneous perception of Jesus himself. You know, there are, there are many pseudo-Christians who would assert that Jesus was sort of a, a passive guy, kind of a, a very docile religious sage, pursuing world peace, peace between men at, at any cost, you know, kind, kind of like a Gandhi of some sort who would never hurt a fly or insult anyone. And when facing hostility, some would portray Jesus as one just to, you know, just roll over and play dead. You know, just a soft fella. Well, folks, that, that is a fictional Jesus that, that is, is born from the human imagination. That, that is not the Jesus that arises from the pages of Scripture. Jesus combats theological misunderstanding, the cleansing of the temple. 
He gets after it. He doesn't like people to be misled on things. So he would correct misunderstanding when it would come to him or he would cross it. And he bases his arguments on very precise grammar. We're going to see as we progress through this passage. He bases his arguments today on precise grammar found in Scripture. He begins in verse 34 with this. After telling them that they were not understanding of the Scriptures, by the way. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The, the very um, center of Jesus' argument here hinges on the, on the fact that they are equating the present life perfectly with the life to come, that everything's going to be exactly the same. Now, many things are going to be the same. We're going to see that we remain human. We don't change life forms. But not everything in heaven is going to be the exact same as what we experience here. We're going to be free from the presence of sin. Relationships are going to be as, uh, as perfect as they could be because we're not so selfish and we learn to really love one another as we should. Looking at this passage, however, you've got to say, whoa, whoa, there, there's no marriage in heaven. There isn't. There's no marriage in heaven. Why? Why is there no marriage in heaven? Because like angels, who, who are immortal, who don't die, like angels, after our resurrection, we can't die anymore. We won't die again. Interpretation, here it is. After we are resurrected, we, we know from many other scriptures, this is effectual both for those who are damned and those who go on to glory, the saved and the damned. After the resurrection, there is no longer any capacity to die. Not possible. In Matthew 25, 25 verse 26, Jesus says, after his separation of, of his sheep from the goats, the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus ensures, this is Matthew 18, verse 8, eternal punishment into what he describes as eternal fire. Folks, our existence is eternal. It's eternal. Uh, you, you need to be prepared to resist some masters of the sleight of hand. Uh, some propose that uh, the Greek term here that is translated in the English eternal, it doesn't always need to be translated forever eternal. And, and analyzing the word alone by itself that is occasionally true. It is occasionally true. However, as with every word, no matter what the word is, it could be trunk. Think of trunk. It could be a car trunk. It could be an elephant trunk. It could be a trunk you store clothes in. The word by itself doesn't, have, uh, doesn't establish meaning or definition alone by itself. It's always the context that establishes meaning. And especially here in Luke chapter 20 and in Matthew 25, duration can only be interpreted and understood as 
forever eternal. Why? Because we will become like angels who can never die. It's eternal. It's clearly eternal. So set gym, uh, linguistic gymnastics aside. Put that aside. Annihilation or, or a ceasing to exist is never a fair or reasonable interpretation of eternal. You see the problem here. The problem is, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to cease to exist. That's very important. Very important. God is God of the living. He's God of the living. And the reason there is no marriage in heaven is because we never die again. So, so there's never, again, a reason in that eternal state for procreation. It's not necessary. God's design for procreation within marriage, it started with Adam and Eve. That was a design by God. It was a need for the occasion. The earth needed to be populated. That's very understandable. In our redeemed state, our final state in heaven, procreation will no longer be necessary no longer be allowed. We will experience intimate relationships uh, without the presence of sin, no longer relationships no longer strained by sin. And Jesus is crystal clear. We will not be married in heaven. We will have intimate relationships. Another important point I, I must make, and the reason I have to make this is because we so rarely come across angels in Scripture. Uh, you really have to bring from different portions of the Bible a theology of, of angels. And we rarely cross this over the years, so I have to address this in this passage because it brings it up. Scripture is also crystal clear, folks. Humans, after we die, we never become angels. We don't become angels. We only become like angels in the state of our immortality. All right? Angels, they are a distinct order of creation, distinct from human. Uh, there were a specific number that God created before the fall, before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. There were a, uh, there were a specific number he instantaneously created. And they have never married or procreated. There has been a set number of angels from the very beginning. Um, I, I fervently disagree, by the way. I'm not going to get far off sidetracked here. But I, I, this makes me firmly disagree with the sons of God reference in Genesis 6-2, if your mind went there. That, that somehow angels intermarried with mortals and created an offspring of some kind. No. Jesus says that angels do not marry. They do not procreate. But back to our passage. Humans... Do not, after we die, become angels. Doesn't matter what the Hallmark Channel or what Jimmy Stewart and his buddy Clarence tell you in Hollywood. That doesn't matter, folks. That's all Hollywood. Humans don't morph into angels. You know, there, there's so much disinformation on the internet and in Hollywood about the afterlife that, that does not arise from the pages of Scripture. I'm sorry, but I've, I've got to bust this bubble. We don't become angels. We, we really don't. Humans also, after death, do not suddenly become all-knowing. 
or omniscient, it's quality of God. Omniscient means knowing all things. Uh, Grandma's not watching us. Grandma's not watching us, nor can she monitor all her family members, all her grandchildren, everybody at once. Uh, That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I imagine that she would be very disappointed with some of the things that we're doing. You know, probably all of us have that, that cousin Earl that Grandma would be very disappointed in if she could actually see what everybody is doing. Seeing what everybody is doing is omniscience. It is knowledge of everything. We can't see the dead. The dead can't see us, all right? Uh, Neither can the Virgin Mary nor any other beatified saint hear and answer your prayers. Only God can do that. Only God himself can hear your prayer, answer your prayer. Only he is all-powerful. Only he knows everything. So grandma, thankfully, grandma remains human. Okay, that's a wonderful thing. And she can only see and enjoy the glory of heaven that is revealed in front of her, just as we can only see uh, our current state on earth right now as it's revealed in front of us. You know, even God's angels are not omniscient or omnipresent or all-powerful. Christians don't morph into new spirit forms after we die. And, And this is the reason I go here, not only because the text demands it, Here's, here's the problem, and here's the reason I'm, I'm willing to spoil everybody's fun. Christians need to stop assigning God's exclusively divine attributes to common people. Folks, that is what Greek mythology does. Assigns God, God attributes to people. People in heaven don't hear us. Mary, I'm sorry, does not hear you when you're praying the rosary. That, that's false. It, it deifies man. It diminishes God by assigning his supreme attributes to man. It deifies man. It diminishes God. Even the angelic realm is not omniscient omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere. We give Satan way too much credit. He isn't omnipresent. He isn't everywhere all the time. He's not God. He's a created being of God. He can't see all of us all the time. What we share with angels, according to this passage, is immortality. Immortality. We can't die. Unless Christ returns beforehand, before our natural death, We all physically die, but we never spiritually die and cease to exist. There can be a spiritual separation from God that can be described as a death, a spiritual death, but we never cease to exist. Contrary to the Sadducees, we will all be resurrected and never to die again, ever. The question is, where will you spend eternity? That that, that is the question. Uh, Because you surely will be resurrected. You don't have any choice in that. And and to prove this point, Jesus directs the Sadducees. He he directs their attention to a very inconvenient place. Very inconvenient for them. The book of Moses. The book of Moses. That, 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 That 
book that they so dearly embrace. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, Jesus says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. That's that's Exodus 3, verse 6. Where God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, now all of that is written and expressed in the Hebrew present tense. God doesn't propose he was or, or that he used to be the God of those previous generations, some of which died 400 years earlier. He assures Moses, I am their God, and they live to me. They'll, they'll always be mine. And, and therefore, Jesus authoritatively declares, verse 38, Now he is not the God of the living for all, present, present tense, for all live to him. Notice, he is God of the living and all still live to him. That is an unequivocal statement asserting that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all still live to God. Therefore, they all still in, in, in glory worship God in heaven. Uh, Jesus' statement, uh, that statement also dis, uh, dismisses any notion of a soul sleep. That, that somehow after we die, we just kind of go into a comatose state until Christ returns. No, that's, that's not right either. We don't go into a soul sleep. No, we learn back in Luke chapter 16 from the story of the rich man and Lazarus when we were there, that with both of them, one going into uh, Hades, death in Hades, for reserved for judgment, and the other, Lazarus, going into Abram's bosom, Uh, they were both immediately very conscious of their situation and spiritual state and surroundings. Here's the question. Jesus just declared this. Do the Sadducees offer a rebuttal? Well, there were some religious lawyers there. They're called scribes. They weren't uh, distinctly Sadducees. They were religious lawyers and they were present and they could only commend Jesus. Commend Jesus for giving such a, such a powerful argument for the resurrection from the book of Moses. They said, teacher, you, you have spoken well. Yeah, they were impressed. They were impressed. But as for the Sadducees, th- this was devastating for them. Completely devastating. John MacArthur writes this. They had concocted their best assault in a vain attempt... And Jesus had dismantled it. Further, he had exposed their ignorance of the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, by showing that it, like the rest of Scripture, does teach the reality of the resurrection. That's what the whole Bible teaches, that we are going to be resurrected. Uh, Sadducees were done. They, They were finished. We don't hear any more from the Sadducees in all of the Gospels. They don't bounce back from this uh, during Jesus, uh, uh, after, his, uh, after this point. For verse 40 says this, They did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Yeah, yeah. They just tagged out of this fight. They're done. 
And Matthew chapter 22 says that the crowds who, who heard Jesus spoke, uh, heard him speak, they were once again astonished at his teaching. And word went, got out to the Pharisees that Jesus had permanently silenced the Sadducees. All right? He, he silenced them. That's the word the Pharisees got. So now they're next to get in the ring. It's time for them to tag back in again. They're actually up in the next passage. So good, good luck, right? Good luck. Folks, Jesus is God of the living, not of the dead. The resurrection is not something new that, if from the New Testament that Jesus and his followers conjured up. The resurrection is a truth that is defended from the Bible cover to cover. And on the third day when he arose, Jesus proved to be the first fruits of the resurrection of all of us to follow, all of us to come. And for all who repent of their sins, who turn from their sins, have a rebirth, a trusting in God, a turning to God, and believe in Christ and confess him as Lord to all who follow him, not, not in this life alone, we will follow him throughout eternity. Praise God, we will follow him throughout eternity, for he is the God of the living. For if we have hoped in Christ in this life alone, we are of all men to be most pitied. All to be most pitied. What, what a ho- hopeless life it would be to live only for this time, only for this life. Uh, the resurrection... Uh, 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 his historical records, as, as uh, we're able to look back on extra biblical records and, and through history and through the Bible, records that living for this life alone, that's how the Sadducees lived for today, not for tomorrow. This life they felt was the only experience they could enjoy. It's not. It's not. Uh, they were the social elite, most focused on amassing much wealth, achieving much status and recognition in their life. And that, those things assure, that attitude assures they did not believe in a life to come. By the way they lived, they proved they did not leave in a life to, actually believe in a life to come. Uh, he who dies has the most toys wins. No, doesn't work out that way. Uh, sound like anybody you know? We know folks like this. Uh, next week, we'll be backing up one paragraph to the tribute to Caesar Uh, We are going to learn to offer God what is God's. That's what's next. Because there is a life to come. What an empty life. Gathering stuff. This is the real reason they were so sad, you see. They were, they had nothing beyond the grave to look forward to. Uh, We hope that doesn't describe you. We should be glad that Jesus is not dead, but he is living Resurrection is what we celebrate every Easter. The resurrection of Christ from the grave. And he is a promise of what comes for us. There is an empty grave. God is pleased with Christ's substitution. He he died for the sins of all who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? You too, if you do, will be resurrected. You have no control over that. You're going to be resurrected one place or another. What will your experience be? Let's pray. Father, what an astonishing passage uh, to look at this and to know, uh, Lord, with confidence that there is eternal life, that uh, we will be resurrected, that the, the end is not just ceasing to exist, 
but Lord, a powerful resurrection. Christ has proven that uh, on this day, uh, 2,000 years ago about, uh, right about that time. And Lord, uh, what a wonderful life you've given us to come together and worship a risen Christ, a Savior who has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. As uh, uh, we turn to him and trust in his sacrifice, Father, we pray for those watching, those amongst us, our family members, if there's anyone who is doubting before today, that, Lord, you would have sent your spirit uh, to make them uh, alive and new to you. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. Amen.